Welcome to this session of the Adelaide Writers' Festival on this beautiful sunny day in Adelaide. I'm Sharon Davis. Before I introduce our guests, Laura and Catherine, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're meeting on today, the Ghana people. They settled here on the Adelaide Plains more than 40,000 years ago and named it Tandaya, the place of the red kangaroo, which I think is rather beautiful. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I'd also like to acknowledge any members of the community who may be in the audience. And now to our guests. To say that it's been a fortnight of shocking news from Canberra is quite an understatement. And this afternoon, we're indeed fortunate to be joined by two of our finest political journalists, Laura Tingle and Catherine Murphy. That's beautiful. <laughs> True Canberra insiders and two women as well, I might add, at the end of a fortnight that has exposed big failures at the heart of the government and the parliament. This was also a week in which Brittany Higgins made a formal complaint to the federal police alleging rape in Minister Linda Reynolds' office. Then on Friday, another allegation of rape in 1988 against a serving cabinet minister before the minister was in government. The woman who made the allegation took her own life last year. These alleged rapes and the stories that have emerged around them shine a light on many aspects of life inside the Canberra bubble, but also raise many issues that go well beyond the confines of Parliament House. The treatment of women in political life and society more broadly, the seeming untouchability of offenders, be they inside the parliament or outside, and the role of our political leaders in dealing with a situation like this, or any crisis for that matter. Political leadership and the government's handling of the COVID crisis are the focus of detailed quarterly essays by Laura and Catherine respectively. Laura, as you know, is currently Chief Political Correspondent of the ABC's 7.30 program. She was previously editor, political editor of the Australian Fin Review. Catherine Murphy is Guardian Australian's political editor and has worked in the Canberra Press Gallery since 1996 for the Fin Review and The Age before joining The Guardian. Between them, I think I added up about six decades of experience in Canberra. <laughs> uh oh <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to you both. Tell me now. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I think we have to start with the latest first. These allegations, these latest allegations that emerged on Friday, what do we know about them? Laura? Oh, um, well, they're pretty horrendous. Um, I think the first thing... That to give people a bit of context, uh, these uh, allegations started to surface, um, to my knowledge, in about the middle of last year. So a lot of people have known uh, what they are, the historic rape uh, uh, allegation, as you mentioned. Um, and uh, we know that the woman involved um, decided she, finally she was going to go to the police uh, at the beginning of last year, 
She made an informal statement to the New South Wales Police uh, and was expected to be interviewed in South Australia where she lived um, sort of after that. And of course, COVID intervened and very tragically in the middle of the year, um, she took her own life. And so that's, that's the sort of bottom line of the story. Um, we won't go into the really gory details, which are really gory and shocking. Um, but of course, it's, it's, uh, it's not a matter of what the politics of this are. It's the question now is, and it's, it's a really complicated question because she's not with us anymore. Uh, how do you investigate this? Uh, is this ever going to be a matter that uh, comes to justice? Um, it, what do the police investigate? Uh, but also, how does the Prime Minister deal with this? Uh, I mean, there is a question of natural justice, but it's also impossible to think that you can have a serving Cabinet Minister uh, confronted by these sorts of allegations and it not being resolved in some way, because is it three quarters of the Cabinet that's male, Murph, or is that, is that sort of optimistic? I was going to say that might, be, that might be an upside uh, estimate, but yeah, it's, it's majority male. Yeah, yeah. so... Yeah. Every male cabinet minister is effectively, you know, under suspicion. And uh, yesterday, and on Friday night, you had all these Venn diagrams people were doing of trying to work out who it was. Um, and while a lot of people are pretty sure who they who they think it was, you can't have a government functioning uh, it, under this sort of cloud. It's just, but you know, how it resolves itself is very unclear. So, Catherine, what do you think the Prime Minister should do? Should he ask that particular minister to stand down while a, an inquiry takes place? And what kind of inquiry would we be talking about? Well, as Laura said, the, the, the nature of the inquiry is a little unclear, given the circumstances of this particular horrific event that is, I, I find, genuinely hard to think about. Uh, but anyway, uh, police, uh, police processes have been put in train and presumably will continue. In terms of, I know a lot of people are asking what Scott Morrison should or shouldn't do in these circumstances, and that's entirely legitimate. He is the Prime Minister. But I would have thought the individual concerned uh, would, uh, should take action himself. Uh, I think uh, for, for a couple of reasons. Um, one, because, as uh, Laura says, this has a genuinely disabling impact on the government and colleagues, and also, dare we say, just because it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I suppose one interesting thing about this is if there is a coronial inquest into the woman's death, um, I mean, the, the government has sort of been implying that uh, that unless there is a formal uh, inquiry into um, into the first crime um, or into the crime, uh, nobody is obliged to stand down. Uh, but as somebody said to me earlier this afternoon, we well, we don't know for sure that that crime occurred, but what we do know is that a death occurred, and the question is the extent to which the alleged crime may have led to that death, uh, and I suspect that will probably be the path through which you know, these issues uh, are aired or which becomes the, the focal point of pressure for that minister to uh, either out himself and or stand aside. 
And at this point, Scott Morrison hasn't responded at all to the allegations or what he might do. Do we know what's happening behind the scenes? <laughs> one likes to imagine. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, yeah, no, look, uh, I think one of the things that, uh, if we spread this out from just this last uh, particular incident or controversy or whatever horrendous thing, um, it's it's really clear to me, or it seems really clear that because the Prime Minister and the government don't really have a framework for dealing with this stuff, they haven't, no, I don't mean like a tick the box framework, but they haven't gone, okay, actually now we come to think of it, there's been bullying, there's been assaults, there's been harassment, and we've got to actually sort of think what we, how we deal with this conceptually um, about, you know, whether we just have to respond to all of this stuff in a really sort of organised way, but instead it's been sort of, you know, treated episodically and um, and there hasn't really been a framework for dealing with it, which means I think you've seen the Prime Minister start to trip himself up in what he's said about... Um, but this is more about Brittany Higgins than this matter. Um, but And, of course, the classic thing was he says on Thursday, well, everybody should report a crime if they know of it, if you're in Parliament, which most people would have said, well, duh. But um, <laughs> he says that. And then, of course, this comes along. And uh, so a couple of people said, oh, actually, if you need to report a crime, I'll just mention it to a couple of politicians who will then be compelled to report the crime, mm. including the Prime Minister. So yeah. what was he thinking would happen? Mm. Catherine, what... Are we to make of the way that Scott Morrison has handled the um, Brittany Higgins allegations overall? Uh, well, I think Laura raises a good point in, in the sense that it's sort of this episodic dealing with um, the sort of the, the kind of crest of a crisis on any given day and, and that's sort of led to this kind of strange stop-start episodic type response. Uh, but I think it's um, yeah, it's it's that sort of um, uh, I suppose when when incidents like these have occurred, and uh, and we've seen a few of them in the in the recent past, the automatic impulse of parliamentarians or has been to try and throw throw a blanket over it and deal with it in house that this is. Uh, that this is our this is our issue, and we will deal with it on our terms, uh, rather than doing what is quite clearly necessary in these circumstances, which is to throw it open and to allow independent eyes and independent scrutiny. Um, and the reason for that is that uh, not in the most recent um, example, but again back to Brittany Higgins. Uh, what makes this, these issues very difficult for parliamentarians to deal with in, in their own minds is that um, what needs to change is for political staff to be given normalcy and agency that exists in every other workplace in the country. In every other workplace in the country, except perhaps in a very small business where you've just got a couple of people working for the boss or a family business, uh, if something goes wrong, people can go to HR and make a complaint. Uh, people also are afforded natural justice rights in terms of their own occupation. In political staffing, it's, it, none of that applies. 
your boss is the is is the minister or or the person who runs the office. There is no independent HR. There is no independence. The minister decides whether you're there, how long you're there, what you do, and the circumstances in which you leave. Uh, nobody has any agency in that setup in order to pursue a grievance of any type. And the reason for that is not necessarily malicious. It's not that um, parliamentarians sit around and think, how can we just, you know, sort of run a sweatshop, run a, I think it was a Jenna Price who called political staff the Uber drivers of politics or something. <laughs> it's like, it, was, it was quite good, actually. Um, but I don't think they sit around thinking about it on those terms. But the, the fact is that political staffing is a really difficult life. It's a really difficult job uh, with highly specialised skills and uh, not everybody can do it. And I think uh, parliamentarians want to maintain total control of their ability to bring people in and bring people out entirely on their terms. And so this is going to be the toughest nut to crack here, and this is the most important nut that needs to crack here, is that we need to give this, these group of professionals in the parliament some agency and some rights, equivalent to the rights I enjoy as an employee and the rights that anybody sitting in this audience enjoy. And that will be the most difficult. And that's why every time this happens, political parties want to deal with this in-house. They do not want an independent process where someone will pick this apart in quite substantial fashion and say, ah, look, this is like something from, you know, a feudal court in the 15th century, probably can't do this anymore. So... I want to take that up in a minute in relation to Scott Morrison in particular. But you've both worked in this toxic environment for a very long time and I listened with some horror to Lenore Taylor talking on the Guardian podcast last week about women in the press gallery wargaming, having to wargame about who they should avoid being alone with and uh, who not to go for late night drinks with, whose office not to go to late at night. What's it been like for both of you? Laura? Um, well, I, 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 I worked in the old building because I'm so old and that was pretty wild. Um, but uh, I suppose I sort of avoided it by just not going out very late at night. Um, but, um, look, it, it, I mean, I think there are a couple of issues here. One of them is about the way women are treated. And, um, I, I mean, I, I sort of realised at one point... Uh, and this is probably in the 90s, that I'd sort of become a rather hardened political type. Um, I went out to have a uh, dinner with some factional operator, you know, because I thought I should, because, you know, that's what political correspondents did, and I'd come out of economics and was a bit of an innocent abroad in, in that sense. Um, and I offered to drop this guy at his house, you know, rather naively, and, uh, you know, propped outside and said, oh, I'll see ya. And he made a lunge for me. Like, he was the most unattractive man. <laughs> um, and sort of lunged and said, want to come in? And I said, no. And, but my reaction to that was, well, one, you're very unattractive, but two, you're profoundly stupid. Why are you making a lunge at the political correspondent of The Australian? <laughs> you don't have very many political smarts, do you? So, I mean, I always just sort of regarded it at that level. But I think this point about... Um, political staff is actually one that underlies all of this. I mean, when I started in Canberra, most of the people who worked in ministers' offices, or uh, well, certainly ministers' offices, were public servants. Mm -hmm. And it changed the relationship 
dramatically. Now, it, it has become much more of a fear and loathing atmosphere for everybody, but, it, but particularly women, uh, with the evolution of the, the MOPS Act, as it's called, and of the Star Chamber. And to give an example of how that works, we've had a case in the last couple of years where, um, uh, well, a minister was bonking one of his advisers. The advisor was uh, up for complaints of bullying. Mm. Uh, his new chief of staff sought advice from the Prime Minister's office about what they should do about the claims of bullying. Um, the Prime Minister's office approached the minister and said, what's this about? He approached the person who'd made the complaints on behalf of the junior staff and said, you're still on probation, aren't you? Why am I being called round to the Prime Minister's office? And she said, well, I have a duty of care to look after the junior staff. He said, well, you're still on probation and it's not working out, so see ya. So she lost her job. The complaint was made to the Department of Finance um, and the Department of Finance, who does they report back to? They report back to the MP, that's mm. the Minister. So yeah. the Department of Finance then gives the Minister a list of all the people in his office who've complained about the woman he's bonking as a bully. Now, this is just an absolutely outrageous situation mm. and in the meantime, the woman who had... Uh, taken the complaint up on behalf of the junior staff was then frozen out by the Star Chamber from getting another job across the government and her career in politics is finished. Now, I think this does affect women more than it does affect men. Um, but, you know, there, there's a cultural question, which is the blokes lunging at you. And I think that's probably got not as bad, but maybe that's just because I'm older. Um, but I don't know. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, you know, certainly when you're a young woman, you're sort of trying to meet people and talk to them and thinking, you know, you need to really get to know everybody and, you know, you, you, you're going to be going out and socialising with them and it's, and it's a really tricky and toxic environment. Mm. Catherine? Um, well, I arrived um, in the... just in 96 uh, and um, I often say to people... Um, Strangely, I, I've had the most benign time, just unbelievably. Um, I think things... Uh, Laura makes the point that she doesn't think it's as bad now, and I think that's that's certainly been my experience. Mm. Um, you know, I arrived, I had a very benign bureau chief uh, who, you know, actually thought about managing the office, who exercised duty of care to his staff, um, you know, gave lots of good pointers for how to navigate the whole scene... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely an outlier. I've never had any difficulty at all uh, in mm -hmm. the building in that respect. Um, but I think, um, you know, also I think, <laughs> given that we, we have procedural rights, I think mm. uh, it, it's really... It, it would be very quite poor of us to be hogging the microphone at this point. I think we need to use our platforms to talk about people who don't have rights. Mm. And... Uh, and that's uh, and that's staff. And as Laura says, like the sort of um, element of this that's changed is obviously sort of taking it out of the sphere of the public sector. If um, ministerial staff and ministerial officers uh, were public servants and signed the APS code of conduct uh, and reported to ministers rather than secretaries, uh, I think this conversation would end. Quick sticks. I wonder whether you think Scott Morrison has the capacity to take that on and to create change. 
Um, and I'm thinking specifically around the comment that he made uh, when he heard of Brittany's allegations and he said that um, he spoke to Jen about it, his wife, and that she has a way of clarifying things. Um, and he was thinking about it as a father and what might happen if it was his girls. Can Scott Morrison take a culture like that on and change it? Sorry for you, Murph, I think. You want me to take this yeah, one, don't you? Yeah. OK. Um, <laughs> can he change Well, yeah, of course he can. Of course he can change it. Uh, uh, Willie... Um, does he have uh, the capacity? Well, does he have the capacity? Yeah, look, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not meaning to blow off the question. No. No, um, no look... Uh, <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> no, he can change it. He should change it. Um, uh, these sorts of, um, of, of layups that, that you've put before the audience. I was, I was at that press conference where the Prime Minister dropped about asking, asking Jen. Um, I wrote a fairly excoriating piece afterwards. Um, it's sort of like, oh, mate. <laughs> oh, my God. It's, it's just, it's so bad. It is so bad. Um, I think the Prime Minister speaks, spends a lot of his time, and this is a genuinely interesting thing about Scott Morrison, um, that I think I was too stupid to actually put in the quarterly, um, but he spends, um, he spends if, you look, if you look at his comms closely, as both of us do for a living, um, he speaks almost entirely and exclusively to men. Mm. It's really quite interesting, because the conventional wisdom in Australia is that women determine the outcome of elections. Uh, but Scott Morrison speaks almost entirely and exclusively to men. It's, I have nev I've not seen another Prime Minister in my lifetime do that. Um, and and I, I spent a lot of time kind of with the PM, kind of looking at him through a, with a furrowed brow, because it's sort of, it's kind of, there's, there's much about his MO that's genuinely interesting and genuinely perplexing. Um, and also that sort of ask Jen to find my plumb line stuff. Um, I don't know. Maybe that does work for some women. Maybe some women listening on at home nod and say, yes, absolutely, I am the plumb line in my family setup, and and it's and it's good. It's good that the Prime Minister speaks this way. Or that he's um, listening. Yeah, or yeah. it's even listening. Mm. It's, it's possible it works, but mm. I think... Um, it also um, alienates a whole bunch of other women across generations and not, uh, not necessarily across voting intentions. I guarantee that there would have been a number of uh, Liberal women, long-term Liberal voters, who would have heard that and thought, are you kidding? But like, are you kidding? Mm. There's also the question, um, you know, there's his language, and, the, and that's a really powerful point that Murph makes about talking to men, but... If you just look at the way he's responded to this, I mean, four reviews, I mean, seriously. Uh, and, you know, the lack of transparency, and it's sort of such a... Look, we'll, we'll just announce a review, and then afterwards we'll say, oh, it's actually probably going to be Cabinet in Confidence, so you probably won't ever find out what's happened in it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's segmented it off. And if you even think about the way it's segmented, it's sort of... It's like a police inquiry, you know, like we're going to investigate circumstances surrounding Brittany Higgins. We're going to investigate the circumstances uh, surrounding, um, you know, or, you know there, there seemed to be an inquiry about culture in the, um, in the party room, but then that all sort of disappeared because there's going to be a cross-party one. But 
know, the, the things that he's initiated aren't actually a clear response to that broader mm. picture. Mm. They're, 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 they're traffic accident reports. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Mm. If we look at... Um, it's very interesting what you say about Scott Morrison and speaking to women. Um, you spent quite a bit of time on Scott Morrison in your essay trying to figure him out yeah. and particularly trying to figure him out during a period of crisis, during mm. the pandemic. Mm. What did you see? Mm. Oh, it's, it, well, I really wanted to... Um, in, in the quarterly I did, it, it originally started um, as as a profile of Morrison and then when the pandemic hit, obviously that was such a major event, we kind of then kind of went in a half-half scenario where I would kind of document what was happening with the pandemic and try and catch a difficult subject in flight and, uh, and tell you what I saw about him. Um, and I particularly wanted to record that history as it was happening because there were some really quite remarkable things that happened. Mm. And uh, and I knew that if, I, if I'd sat down and written the quarterly essay about what happened last year at this point this year, I would have written it differently, I would have asked different questions and I would have, reflect, I would have refracted it back through recent events. So I really did literally want to write a real-time history. Um, so we sort of... Um, the interesting thing about Morrison, because there were two federated crises in 2020, the first was the bushfires and the second was the pandemic, and he totally screwed the first, and he more or less nailed the second, although he made mistakes and he was saved by the premiers on more than one occasion. Uh, but uh, I was really fascinated by that live learning that happened in front of me, that uh, things that he knew that he had uh, not done in the first, or, or had just hadn't risen to the occasion in the first significant crisis. Uh, he banked some of those lessons and didn't repeat them in the second. And uh, again, as a point of close study, that was really fascinating. And I wanted to, as I said, record that in real time. He is a very vexing subject. I watch him for anything up to 12 hours a day. And, um, <laughs> And I still, oh, well, it's my job. It's my job. Um, uh, I, I figure you need me to do that. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so I do it. Um, so anyway, he's, he's sort of grimly fascinating. It's just, and, and from, the, no, from the point of view of he just, you can't nail him. Because every time you, you kind of catch him in a, in, at a moment in flight, he will, he'll literally shapeshift in front of you. And, and he'll be something not quite what he was five minutes previously. Again, that, that kinetic quality he's got is very different to every other Australian Prime Minister I've covered. Um, and I just, I just keep turning up thinking today's the day I'm gonna, I'm gonna nail this. <laughs> and I haven't done it yet. <laughs> I, think, I think you referred to him quite beautifully in a response to the essay, actually as an outline, like an outline mm. in a colouring book. Mm. There's a bold black outline, a defined shape, but Morrison leaves you to choose your own, own colours to mm. render him. Mm. He does, yeah. He's, if you think about him, this only makes sense as an analogy. I fear I'm hogging the mic here, so I'll do no, this go, quickly. Go. Um, it, it works as an, as an analogy if you think about Donald Trump, right? If you think about Trump, whose name I shouldn't bring into this lovely, calm, beautiful festival. But anyway, let's just do it briefly. Um, 
there is a guy with uh, no ambiguities. He is just fully, assertively hewn, present, in your face, nothing left to the imagination. He exists so assertively that you have to actually step back from him. Whereas Morrison is not like that. Morrison exists uh, as a... He has pieces of, of branding that all of you... You know, if I ask five people in the audience to just give me a character sketch of him, you would have essential elements. But uh, he always leaves an air gap so that you can interpret what he's doing. You can, actually you can actually have feelings yourself that you impose on him. And again, as a kind of political strategy, I think this is, this is really interesting because very few political leaders construct or conduct themselves in that way. I'll just add one point before we move on. Um, but the, the countervailing force to that, though, is starting to become more apparent. Uh, you can't outrun your record as a Prime Minister. You can't constantly shapeshift and be something you weren't five minutes ago and no one notices. Um. It's sort of a, it's a strategy where, I think I said it in my weekend column, eventually gravity asserts itself. You can't, you can't sort of outrun an immutable force like gravity. So, um, you know, I don't know how long he can get away with this constant slight tweaking of his, of his, of his persona. Um, I think at some point you can't get away with it, but I'm not sure exactly what that point is. Laura, in your essay, uh, Democracy and the Rise of the Strong Man, and it's interesting that Catherine referred to Trump there and uh, how he was a definite Sorry. character, you've examined the question of what makes a leader. And I'm wondering where Scott Morrison fits in that examination of yours. Uh, so we think about leaders often in terms of whether we like them or not. Um, and I think one of the interesting things that's happened in the last couple of years is that we used to, you know, write a lot about leader, leaders and leadership in terms of uh, whether they were pushing through change. And I think what's happened with um, COVID is it actually is sort of a different task. You know, we basically want them to tell us everything's going to stay the same. And that's a, quite a different political task. But um, in, you're referring to my third quarterly essay, which, uh, a bit like Kath um, having to morph because of COVID in her essay, I had to morph because of uh, Trump. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and it was, there was a... I quoted a, an American academic, Ron Heifetz, who talks about, you know, what is it that leaders actually do? And... He said, leaders guide a community through change, but, and which sort of, sort of holds in both the fact that, you know, you give a direction, but basically you, you also have to bring people along, you have to read the crowd, you know, do those things. It might, not, it might be a good change, it might be a really hard change, but you, you have to have the skills to read your audience. There's no way, you know, it's like, say, the mining tax with labour, you know, they weren't able to... Um, bring people along with them. They weren't able to uh, articulate why it was a good idea. Uh, and all of that is a, a part of leadership that we don't really sort of understand very well in Australia. That is that you understand your audience really well, but you don't just understand it so that you're playing to them, which is what's happened in the last 20 or 30 years of our politics. Um, but you understand who they are to bring them into a different space. So that's 
to me what leaders should be about. Hasn't Scott Morrison done that through the pandemic in some ways? He's brought us through the pandemic. Oh, well, well not when we're not finished yet. We're, but we're not finished yet. There has he's, been a process going on that he's been in charge of, including a national cabinet. Yeah, that well, well, he he has, um, and the national cabinet, which is I'm thinking where we're going to segue to next, which will be good. Um, I mean, I think that's interesting because um, you now we, we 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 in terms of leaders, we've had this view that there's there's the Prime Minister and there's the opposition leader for the last however long. We don't even talk about the government and the opposition all that much. We talk about the leaders. So suddenly in, with National Cabinet, you see what is essentially a return to the way politics ran before the deregulation process of the 1980s, which basically stripped mm. most of Canberra's powers away from it, ironically. Um, John Howard then responded to that by... Um, barging into the state areas. But one of the really interesting things about leadership and the pandemic is um, the idea of cont a contested space. Suddenly, we've got all these different leaders with equal powers contesting the ideas. And you sort of think, isn't that better than just having one guy mm. basically running the agenda? And people will say, um, you know, I've written this essay about Australia and New Zealand, isn't it great Jacinda Ardern did all this stuff so much better than we did? And in general, that's true, but what if Jacinda Ardern had been a complete dud? Mm. Uh, you know, she, she, she would have... You know, New Zealand would have been in all sorts of trouble. So um, this, this is just me generally sort of rabbiting on, but, I mean, I just think Scott Morrison's leadership during the pandemic was, a, was possibly in sort of ceding power to the states in a way, ceding political power, which obviously suited him when things were going badly. He's put so many eggs in the basket now of the vaccine working and, you know, shunted off so much to the states. Uh, you know, it'll be really interesting if things go badly or well on the, uh, on the uh, vaccine, whether people identify that as being something that is associated with him particularly. Catherine, you watched him through that period. And I might say that uh, Catherine's essay is like a thriller. It reads like a thriller <laughs> during that period of the pandemic when everything was changing daily. And mm. I could see it as this amazing film. Um, it's, it's a beautiful piece of writing. Um, but you watched Scott Morrison up close during that. Yep. Did you get a sense of him as someone who was displaying leadership then? It was. It was so. That period was so fascinating. <laughs> I, I, I hope I've captured it, because it was really so fascinating. Um, because it was sort of like all all of the governments of the world faced with uh, this threat sort of went into this period of freefall all around the world, where they just they didn't know how bad it was going to be. They didn't know where the bottom was, and um, I think. Uh, in terms of the initial Australian response to this sort of sentiment was felt very keenly around the Cabinet that um, often with Australia, like Australia is led, led on all kinds of stuff, weirdly, for such a small place. We are exceptional in many ways. But we also do, in times of global crisis, we do tend to look for guidance for the rest of the world. What's happening elsewhere? Have we got this right? Are we making these calls correctly? And uh, because America was just 
insane, had, had kind of fallen into insanity because Britain was, uh, you know, God knows what went on with Boris Johnson or is still going on with Boris Johnson, but that was also highly, that uh, it wasn't a good role model for Australia. We had to make some really big calls real fast and hope they were right. And, uh, and just the sort of degree of um, how, it, well, I mean, they, they weren't um, Morrison and others. I don't think they ever appeared in public shaking in their boots, but they were, they were frightened. They were genuinely frightened. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were having to make really profound calls real fast with not a lot of external validation. And, uh, and so there were elements of, of Morrison's MO that changed quite fundamentally during that period, including the collaboration with the states, which, as Laura says, is sort of distributed power in the Federation. And thank God we live in a Federation that functioned. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Seriously, because we may have lived in, a, lived in a Federation that didn't. And so there were, there were all these sorts of elements um, all coalescing at once. And to sort of be there seeing it, to see fear that, that, that is so visceral they can't hide it. <laughs> That's pretty unusual for someone in my position. Um, but, you know, they rallied quickly. I said a couple of minutes ago that the premiers saved Morrison, uh, particularly during the first lockdown. They, that wouldn't have happened had they not intervened, and that's all kind of mapped out in the essay what happened. Even in the formation of the National Cabinet, which they just, well, sorry, which they just decided on, on the spot, in the room. No one thought that there would be a National Cabinet when they went into that meeting. No one, there were no papers, there were no propositions. Uh, what happened was, uh, you know, it's quite an interesting little tiny story that. They went in to do a normal COAG meeting. Um, they had a bunch of public health advice which they thought they were going to come out and announce. Then Victoria went into the public health advisers meeting and had a very, very different take, much more pessimistic take about how the curve of infections may have developed without prompt action. There was a boil over in the health advisers meeting. That came back into the COAG meeting. Morrison got the fright of his life because all of a sudden he was having to go out and front different medical advice. So they just kicked all the officials out of the room, the premiers and the prime minister said, get out, we need a political discussion. Um, they were in this cavernous, empty football stadium in Parramatta, weirdly, having this really by-the-seat-of-your-pants political discussion, these premiers and the prime minister, and they determined in that first wave that they were going to manage this together. The National Cabinet was going to be the structure and they were going to do it that way. And that they did it entirely in the room, on the spot. So it's kind of like... Anyway, there's, there's all these elements that are kind of mapped out in the piece. Um, but, like, people, people are going to be doing PhDs, governance PhDs on this for God knows how long. And there's so, there's so many interesting dimensions to it. Um, you know, what I enjoyed about it is that we genuinely had some collaborative politics for about five minutes before it all sadly went to shit again. Um, and that was what I was determined to capture because that actually happened. Remember that happened. That wasn't a fantasy. That actually happened. Um, I mean, you know, sadly, it's gone to shit again now. Laura, what is it... Because you've looked at New Zealand as well and you mentioned before that, you know, Jacinta, uh, Jacinda Ardern sort of went on her own, went out there on her own. What is it about her, do you think, that a kind of... What kind of leadership does she display and what is it about her that makes her sort of lauded globally, this little country lauded globally as a leader? Well, let's think about the systems and work upwards. I mean, uh, people often say that 
New Zealand was able to do more reform because uh, it didn't have states. Um, but I argue in my essay that, in fact, uh, what happened was that you ended up with this exceptional power in the hands of a uh, of the executive and the prime minister in the in the olden days before they moved to MMP. So the interesting thing about Jacinda Ardern was essentially she was sort of reverting to New Zealand form um, because uh, you had prime ministers like uh, Piggy Muldoon uh, and David Longy uh, and a couple of subsequent Labor prime ministers who they went through very quickly, uh, either doing things very... Uh, you know, you know, Piggy Muldoon. Well, we won't go. We won't go there. But you know, <laughs> Longy sort of led this government of radical reform, which nobody was quite in control of, and New Zealand fought uh, fought against that, if you like, for about the next fifteen years because uh, they had so broken trust with people, and and Helen Clark uh, and even John Key spent a lot of, the, of their prime ministerships trying to rebuild trust and saying, well, we're not going to do very much, and we, you know. We were going to negotiate. They'd moved to the MMP system, which meant everybody had to consult and um, form minority governments, as we would call them. So Jacinda Ardern is, I think, a child of all of that process. Uh, once again, we're talking about... It. People sort of tend to see it in terms of her leadership. She's obviously a sensational communicator, uh, but I think it's more than that. Um, yes, she's a great communicator, but... She leads a government which is basically run by public servants who are the Australian public service reckon are much better than they are. Um, so the advice process was better. Um, and the, the whole attitude towards transparency and stuff, possibly because it is a small country and everybody knows every, everybody else, is also different. New Zealand voluntarily, before they'd been asked, released mm. all of the documents about their decision-making process on COVID. Um, into in, mm. in, you know, There's just thousands of pages of documents that have been released as they go along. And that has been really important in building that process of trust with people. Mm. Um, you know, they, they sort of didn't necessarily act all that much faster than we did. And often, you know, the, the, there's document, doc, documented communications where you think they were clearly waiting to see what Australia did. But when they did it, they were really decisive about it they didn't go through that uh, sort of passage of saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to have a bit of a lockdown, but I want to go to the footy first. Um, you know, uh, I mean, that, I think that was a, a bad sign. I mean, Merce looked at this more, but uh, that, that, that period was not good. You know, it was, it was in terms of saying, actually, we're going to go womp. Um, we didn't do that and she did. Yeah. So it was much clearer. There are such things as priorities, Laura. Well, absolutely. <laughs> Footy first, getting six seconds. Here we're talking about the personal and political skills of leadership, but in your essay, Laura, you actually say that we're focusing much too much these days on the personal qualities of leadership and not enough on the policies. Mm. Yeah, well, we don't really have policy conversations very much these days, do we? I mean, we have it... Well, um, I'll, I'll yes, contradict myself. Yes, we do. We have... We're not doing policy. We're not doing policy, <laughs> yes. We're not doing reform. Um, yeah, no, we, we, we have... Well, that's not really a discussion. That's that's sort of more of a, a, a comment rather than an answer, as they say. But, um, yeah, so we don't have re really policy discussions anymore. And this week, for example, we had the government announcing 
um, it's that it was going to make a decision on job seeker, uh, and they didn't let us into their thinking about why you only added another was it three dollars forty seven a week to the dole and other payments. They didn't tell us what the rationale for that figure was. They gave us this sort of really stupid, um, you know, I don't know how many hours it had t taken to find a rationale which something, something, the Howard government, as if that, were, that answered all questions. Um, and then they sort of loaded it with this whole uh, dob in a, dob in a, you know, an unruly worker um, and uh, send them to the salt mine sort of rhetoric um, delivered so eloquently as always by Michaelia Cash. <laughs> and, and it's just, you know, we, I mean, when governments persuade people, it's because we feel that they've let us into their confidence about why they're doing something. It's not necessarily because we like them or they're funny or, you know, Jacinda, Jacinda Ardern's not there because she has eloquent lines. She brings people in to her confidence. She says, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it. And I actually think that the last couple of generations of politicians in Australia don't actually know that that's something, that's a thing. They, you know, it, 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 because they, they turn over and they see what the last generation's done and they don't have any recollection of what, you know, what has happened in the past and why it's worked. Well, it's almost like they're scared of talking about policy because someone in their own government might disagree with them in their own cabinet or... Yeah, it's partly that. It, it is... Um, again, it's sort of complicated um, in a way um, uh, because Laura's right, there is this sort of strange loss of muscle memory in Australia, which has actually been really good at big public policy debates. We seem to have kind of lost lost the art of doing them. Well, we've done some, but they've been spectacularly stupid. Um, so it's sort of, um, it's genuinely multifactorial. The other, the other, um, and this isn't an apologia or a, you know, oh, poor, poor didums, they can't do policy, it's really hard because they really should just do it. Um, but one of the difficulties that's afflicting all democracies at the moment is the sort of erosion of shared facts. Uh, and uh, Laura's sort of saying, I reckon that Jacinda Ardern is an effective leader for a bunch of reasons. That's sort of taking into confidence, restoring confidence, transparency, all of that sort of stuff. Just call that emotional intelligence, right? Because that's actually what it is, as well as intellect. Um, that, that is a, that's a really powerful antidote to our age where um, through really big factors like, uh, you know, sort of technolo technological disruption, the rise of the platforms, the diminution of the mainstream media in terms of our business models and our, and, and our, the, our voices uh, in society and democracies. It is, it is harder for politicians to conduct policy debates because of the absence of shared facts. It's, it is becoming really difficult and really perilous for democracies. They could Just, put a few facts out there. No, 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 exactly. They could, they could, they could, I know. I mean, radical shit, imagine, <laughs> sorry. Uh, who knew facts? Um, they, they, that's right, and, and that's, I was sort of trying to say grimly. Anyway, we, Laura and I have promised to fight. We might yeah. have one, actually. <laughs> we were trying, actually, before we came on, we wondered, uh, given that we've never had a fight in 25 years, what we might fight about. Yeah. But anyway, we're, we're, we're failing. We're, we're failing. failing. Anyway, sorry about that. <laughs> um, uh, but 
uh, of course, um, you know, politicians uh, feed into this by not being truthful, not, not being frank, not being transparent not taking people into their confidence. So it's not woe is me, how dreadful Facebook has destroyed the world, it's also they're destroying the world by the way they conduct debates. But I think that whole underpinning is, is part of the story that we're seeing. Um, and it's genuinely fascinating and frightening in equal measure. I, I want to ask you about Scott Morrison and ideology because in the interview that you did with him, he said he's he said that he's moved beyond ideology. Mm. <laughs> that was kind of my response to, um, particularly when I thought of that man holding up that piece of coal in Parliament. I kind of did wonder about uh, you know moving beyond ideology. But mm. what did he mean by that? And and can we take that really seriously, particularly in light of what Laura has said? Um, mentioned about this week and the unemployment benefits. Yeah. That, that feels to me to be right back into the conservative camp once again. Yeah, he's a, he is sort of... Um, he, unlike a, some of his colleagues, um, the Prime Minister is instinctively um, a project manager, a campaign director and a highly transactional person. There are people in politics who come into politics because they are genuinely moved to change the plight of civilisation in some shape or form, right? They have passions, genuine passions, and they want access to power in order to do, to, to make change. Like John Howard, you know, he wanted to make tax policy more favourable to traditional families. He wanted to deregulate the labour market, right? They were uh, deregulating the labour market was literally the hill John Howard died on politically. Like they, that, they are motivated by, by these underlying kind of philosophical um, predilections and interests. It's, if Scott Morrison has one of those, I'm yet to discover it. Um, so in that sense, he is, uh, he is not ideological by comparison to some of his colleagues. He is transactional. Um, there's a little anecdote in the essay about Nick Xenophon um, <laughs> bumping into the Prime Minister on the forecourt when Nick was in the Senate and uh, the Prime Minister was then the Treasurer and uh, Nick just wanted to grab Scott Morrison's ear about something for five minutes and said, hey, mate, you want a coffee? And uh, Morrison spun around to him and just sort of went, I'm strictly transactional, mate. <laughs> like, just a total shutdown. I'm not interested in having coffee. Like, if you've got an issue, come see my office, but I'm strictly transactional, mate. It's like, that is the guy. He is strictly transactional. I think Malcolm so, Turnbull also referred to himself as transactional, didn't he, Laura? Well, he did, but I think he did have... Well, he came in with a few ideas of what, what he wanted to do, and, um, and I, don't, I don't think he, uh, he... I don't think he started... He, I mean, I think, you know, if you think about the way... Morrison approaches things. He see, he's sort of he, he, the prism is as actually a, a political issue that has to be dealt with, um, and uh, whereas I think Turnbull, you know, did actually have a few ideas of okay, well, you want to get the NEG, you know, he was he was trying to find something to do about climate change, and he wasn't trying to do something that he thought would necessarily be easy. Um, it kept getting compromised and compromised and then got knocked off altogether, as did he. Um, but so I think he, he, 
they all become transactional in office, but I think he did have a few ideas about what he wanted to do. Just He just didn't have the political skills to do any of them. I think it would be remiss of us not to at least quickly touch on Anthony Albanese as the opposition leader and where he sits in this notion of leadership. What do you think, Catherine? I think it's genuinely a really tough environment for um, opposition leaders during the pandemic. I, I, genuinely, I think it's really hard um, because the, everybody is interested in uh, two things at the moment in the community. Will I get coronavirus and will I have a job? Um, beyond that, there's not a lot of bandwidth for a whole bunch of other stuff that's actually really important. So if you've got nothing really to contribute on those things, and that's uh, uh, you know, and that's a function of opposition, you've got no power, you, you've got nothing, you've got no value to add. Uh, you struggle for to get your voice into uh, various conversations. I think also Albanese made a decision last year that the country needed um, needed. Well, not a, not a carping opposition needed uh, needed to if if the government's response to stuff wasn't totally stupid, uh, then to some degree they would validate it for the good of the country. Uh, again, it tends to muffle your own voice. Um, I think it's sort of like the principal risk Albanese faces. I think at the moment is that they they are very much fighting the last war. They're very much. Um, uh, still scarred by the election they thought they would win in 2019. Um, you know, certainly the Brains Trust around Albanese thinks uh, we had too many policies, we had too big an agenda, it was too progressive, it was too ambitious in the sense of out of sync with where the country was at, too detailed, we tried to be a government from opposition. Um, John Hewson tried the same thing, didn't work out so well for him either. Uh, we've got to strip it right back. And they're sort of thinking about how to be Kevin Rudd in 2007, which we've all forgotten now, but which was really just a set of pretty simple propositions. Uh, but that's a really big retooling operation. And, uh, and look, I mean, when we talk about, you know, like Anthony Albanese is labour to his core, like absolutely lives, breathes it, um, but can he communicate it? Mm. Is the is the big question that he faces? He has more than a touch of the Kim Beasleys about him. Another Labor man to his bootstraps, not exactly always the sharpest communicator. Um, you know, it, it it's a big it's a big they've got a big fight on their hands this year to kind of pull themselves back into the contest to make the contest about something other than the pandemic and to settle on some pro policy propositions that make the case for a change of government. Laura, you interviewed Albanese a few weeks ago on 7.30 and mm. you suggested that uh, there's a lot of behind the scenes going on, a lot of discussion about his leadership. Mm. There is, and, um, and you look at the people who are Anthony Albanese's sort of closest, closest allies over very many years, and they're beginning to despair uh, because, uh, for the reasons Catherine mentions, it's hard to get uh, cut through, and uh, he's not getting it. Um, and the, what they'll sort of say in really basic terms, and this goes back to the whole question of personality, politics, and everything, but they'll just say the problem is he doesn't look like a prime minister, mm. and um, and so you know the, the conversation that's going on now behind the scenes 
reluctantly, because n nobody wants to do this at all, but reluctantly they say, we've got to make a pragmatic decision about what our best opportunity will be to win government. And we can't, you know, we, can't, we just can't stay in opposition for another three years. This is a very old government. It looks like it's not quite so old because we've had three prime ministers. It hasn't done anything. You know, what, as Albanese himself says, what's, what's the point of Scott Morrison? But uh, nobody's quite sure what the point of Al Anthony Albanese is, unfortunately. So, you know, the, the hardheads are basically saying, like, they're, they're all the factional manoeuvres and people knifing each other and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the, the bottom line is they're saying things like, the person who's probably going to give us our best chance, regardless of the quality of that person, is Tanya Plibersek, because she looks different from Scott Morrison. Mm. You know, that's, that's the brutal truth. And uh, now whether it will happen or not, unclear, but that's, you know, that brings us back sort of full circle to the fact that you know, while, while we might all be fascinated by the ins and outs of policy and everything, most people go about their lives having not the slightest rat's interest in uh, politics. Couldn't quite tell you who the, you know, which which party the leaders belong to even. And you know, you have to have that basic cut through of somebody going, oh yeah, him, he's all right. He, he looks like a good bloke, or you know, an, a, a nice nice woman, or whatever that they say. You've just got to have that really basic connection with people. Cut through. Mm. Uh, we've got a few minutes for questions. The microphone will be in the centre up there. I will ask you to keep your questions very brief. Um, and while we're waiting for someone to come to the microphone, I just wanted to ask finally, when we're talking about this government in particular, leadership and, you know, looking at the last couple of weeks... I feel like there's a moment of reckoning happening. Do you think that's the case? And in your essay, you asked Catherine, what hill will Scott Morrison die on? Do you have a kind of an answer to that yet? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, a moment of reckoning. Um, I, I don't know that I would describe it in exactly those terms, but I know what you're saying. Um, I think it was that point I was trying to make before that he is this sort of um, constantly adjusting, calibrating, retuning political instrument, the Prime Minister, and at a certain point in time that, does, that doesn't sort of look elegant, it looks like calculation, and, uh, and then people start to sort of look at you a bit differently. Like, are you really that good bloke or are you really not that good bloke? Uh, and I don't know when that happens. I think I said that. I genuinely don't know what the tipping point is because the backdrop to all of this is if the election is fought in crisis mode, that we're still in a pandemic, all of the election contests of last year demonstrate that that environment is very favourable to incumbents. So, um, you know, reckoning is a multifaceted beast. Uh, the government, certainly over these two weeks, uh, has had the worst two weeks uh, that it's had since uh, the bushfire di d mm. disasters. Uh, perhaps that reminds people that the Prime Minister is, you know, for a person of famously excellent judgment, sometimes has crap judgment. Uh, but, uh, but I think people, you know, are still in a pandemic in their minds and in the first recession in 30 years. And 
I think people make different political judgments in that environment. Thank you. Could we take a question from... Yes. My question is for Catherine. In your long study of Morrison, how does his Pentecostal faith mm. inform his decisions, let's say, Israel or, you know, in our secular society? And mm. how does it change his sort of amoeba-like personality <laughs> into morphing into decisions that are more appropriate for a secular country like Australia? Yeah, I did want to get into that with him when I spoke to him for the, for the essay. I was... I was very geared for a faith conversation. Um, uh, no, like really, uh, because I, I want to know the answer to that myself. Um, but he, he shut it down pretty quick sticks. Um, he, he wants, uh, he, uh, the Prime Minister wants people to know that he is an, uh, an ev evangelical Christian. He wants people to know that he is a man of faith, uh, but he doesn't want the faith interrogated particularly. So you sort of hit a, a bit of a brick wall. Um, I think it is, uh, faith has been a part of his uh, life from childhood. Uh, faith led him to his wife, who is a very influential person in his life. Um, you know, his parents were people of faith, their social circle are people of faith. Uh, he maintains friendships, uh, you know, around faith. Uh, so I think it is very important to him. It's um, because I, I sort of describe him as this transactional shapeshifter, um, which suggests that there's no core to the bloke. Uh, I think faith is definitely at the core. Uh, but to what extent it influences him, like, I mean, I would love to know if he thinks God made the world, for example. Um, but uh, I, I, th I don't think... Um, I think it influences his values. I think it, it influences his view of the world. Uh, it influences uh, his sort of social concepts. Um, uh, but I, I, you know, I, I, I think he sort of, from what we see, from the, the decisions that he makes, uh, he, I don't think it's sort of like at the core of every policy decision he makes, for example. It's there, it's present, it's important, but I don't think it's, you know, it's, it's the deciding factor in what budget measure number three is, for example. It's, and that's what his colleagues say as well. If you ask them, they say, you know, other than maybe same-sex marriage... Yeah, which uh, he was very animated about. He was very yeah. animated about. Other than yeah. that, it's all just transactional politics. Yeah. Next question, very quickly. Is that working? Yeah. Um, two brief observations and a question for you both, Ooh. Catherine and um, Laura as journalists. The first observation is for Catherine. Um, you defined um, Scott Morrison as an outline for voters to colour in with their own colouring in pencils. I wonder if he'd be better described as the arrow bar of Australian politics. It's the um, bubbles of nothing that make him really something. Um, <laughs> Okay. And secondly, Question. secondly, um, for Laura Tingle, on the issue of leadership, um, you talked about leadership as being a mechanism to lead people through change. I would have thought that one of the defining elements of leadership is taking accountability, exercising responsibility for your portfolio, your brief, whatever it is. And on that note, a segue um, to a question to you both. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the question is, 
how can we exercise confidence in politicians when they don't answer journalists' questions directly and simply? And what can you do as journalists to make them answer questions directly and simply? Well, we'd love them to answer questions simply. We'd love them to be accountable. Um, unfortunately, you know, short of tying them down and hitting them with a red-hot poker, it's a little bit difficult. And it's become harder because, uh, you, know, it, I, I, you know, if you look at Twitter, people are always saying, you know, so-and-so so should go and ask them questions. Why, 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 why isn't Laura or Catherine asking questions to the Prime Minister at this press conference? You'll say, well, because it's in bloody Sydney, you know, or whatever, or Perth. Politicians don't hang around in Canberra very much anymore. These are just some really basic things. Um, we don't actually get all that much access to them. Uh, the building is designed to make it really hard to get access to them. Um, and it's very, very frustrating. Uh, but part of that is that they need to have a sense that they do have to answer questions. And I think they've lost that. They've lost it in the parliament. And all you can do is try to continually expose when they aren't answering questions, when they aren't being accountable, and um, force them into a position where they feel that they have to and have to be. And it, I mean, in the current circumstances with this historic rape allegation, the government was sort of saying yesterday, well, in, privately, they're saying, oh, well, I think we'll just tough this out. Really? I mean, this is just... This is, this is one of those turning points where they can't just tough it out because most of them have now been, you know, tarred by the brush of being rapists and, you know, you can't just tough that out. You've got to actually, actually sort of do something about it. Well answered. OK. Sadly... <laughs> They, they, We're still sadly, working on the fight at they, 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 oh, they no? promised us a fight, no. but it hasn't happened. Okay. Um, but uh, unfortunately, that's the end of the session. I can't help but think we're really well served by having such two perceptive and eloquent women <laughs> reporting. Copies of their wonderful essays, quarterly essays, are available in the book tent. And Laura and Catherine will be hanging around for a little while to sign them, if you'd like to, over there at the book tent. Um, and I'd like to thank you all for coming. Could I please remind you that um, when you're moving around the gardens, and especially as you're making your way from here to book signings, the book tent and the catering area, please maintain social distance and follow any direction from the COVID marshals. And thank you all so much for attending today. It's great to see you here. Thank you.